Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your breadth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's amazing the way that you who are one, yet three, work in our lives. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you breathe life into us. You take we who were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and you make us alive. And then you walk with us, and you speak to us, and you direct us, and you magnify Christ in us, and you are completing a work in us that one day will result in our perfection. Thank you for your work in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before you're seated, introduce yourself to somebody. There's lots of new people, and it's good to just say, hi, I am... We got some here. It is good to greet one another, and uh, thank you for for doing that. As I mentioned uh, when we first got here, I have been thinking about you all as my brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what we are. And when you become a Christian, you become part of a pretty amazing family, not a perfect family a family that's growing and learning together, but a family nonetheless. And it is uh, with broken hearts that we acknowledge that John McLeod went to be with the Lord on Friday, a brother in Christ, one of our family. And we rejoice with him. His journey is complete, at least from a temporal perspective. But Jillian and his son uh, now enter a path of grief, which will probably last for the rest of their earthly life. So pray for them and uh, grieve together. But as you know, we grieve as those who have hope. Uh, Secondly, as a family, um, your leadership um, are heading away Friday, Saturday for a few hours to um, talk, to pray, to laugh, to eat, uh, just to consider the church. Um, And so pray if you are able to. Um, Some of you do have the gift of praying and pray for us as we meet uh, beginning Friday at about 5 and end at about 4 uh, the next day. And then I just wanted to make a just a passing comment. Um, we very rarely mention anything about giving in our church. Um, it's, we just don't need to do that. But I just want to acknowledge your continued faithfulness and generosity to the work of the Lord, not only here, but across the street and around the world. I know that God gifts some of you uniquely to give. You have the gift of giving, and you are using that gift. And we are thankful for that, and may God bless you as you do that. Others of us, we just are learning to be stewards, and so you give proportionately, and you give as God places a need on your heart, and as you're able, you give. 
and God meets our needs. And uh, I just want to say thank you for your stewardship and for your ongoing willingness to um, serve the Lord through your giving. It makes an impact, as they say, not only here, but around the world. Um, it's a great family, and I'm glad to be um, part of it. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is where we're turning to now for the next number of months. And I am personally pretty um, excited and looking forward to the Gospel of Mark. You might wonder, well, how do we get to uh, a book of Mark? Um, I think God leads us there. And it's been my desire for some time to get us back to a gospel. And I think this is the time uh, to look at a gospel. We've not looked at the gospel of Mark. Um, and so it is a good time to do that. As you know, if you've been coming to this church for any length of time, what we do is we open a particular section, usually a book of the Bible. We start at the beginning and we work our way to the end. And we do it in a linear fashion. I think that's the way you read a book. That's the way you watch a movie. Uh, that's the way you read a letter that you receive. There, there's an order. There's a progression to those. There's a plot that develops. And so that's true with the Bible and certainly books of the Bible. And so uh, if you're new here, that's what we do. We open a book and we start at the beginning and we work our way uh, carefully um, to the end. One of the things that helps us do is, believe it or not, there are a lot of things that I really am anxious about talking about things that sometimes I don't feel competent talking about, um, some things I'd like to avoid. But when you go through a book of the Bible, you can't do that. You can't skip things. And so um, the hard things we just give to Barry and Andrew, and they deal with them. And, uh, but that's one of the reasons we go through a book of the Bible, so that we are led by the Spirit to deal with things that come up, I believe, often that prepare us for something that might happen weeks or months down the road. Uh, and so we do that. Secondly, if you've come for any length of time, you know that we have a general principle where we, we, we go between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we just uh, finished a time in Genesis 1 to 11. We did a little bit of break in the book of songs and Psalms, and now we're in uh, the book of Mark. And uh, we just go back and forth between the, 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 the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we do that for a reason. We believe that the Bible is a single book. And it has an Old Testament and a New Testament, but it's a single book. And there's a ditty that some of you may have heard, and I certainly remind myself of it once in a while. And it's simply this. The New Testament is contained in the Old, and the Old Testament is explained in the New. There's a very intimate connection between what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you can't make sense of part of the Old Testament without knowing the New Testament, and you can't make sense of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And so that's one of the reasons we do this. Uh, an individual uh, um, a couple hundred years ago wrote, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, or much of what is in it, it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And so there's a unique, intimate connection between the two. And one other person wrote that a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And so there's a reason why we jump between, uh, or go back and forth in sort of a systematic way. And you would know that if you're following along with the 10 by 5 by 5 reading plan, 
Um, that is uh, arranged so that we are in the Old Testament and we are in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we're in a, just a fascinating section right now. Um, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11 to 15, uh, these just instructive, interesting accounts of the life of David. And uh, they are written for our instruction. And so we do that back and forth. Um, I am convicted, convinced that all Scripture is breathed out by God, uh, divinely inspired by God, and is profitable for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness' sake. And so that's why we go back and forth between these two. Uh, why the Gospel of Mark? In a nutshell, I want to persuade you of something. I want to reason with you about something. Specifically this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want to persuade you of that. That's how Mark's gospel opens, and that's how Mark's gospel progresses, at least until the end of the first half, which comes around uh, the end of chapter 8. Mark sets out to prove that statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I think that's one of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself in life. I think there's three. Now, you could probably come up with more. Um, but three of the most important questions you can ask yourself is, first of all, who was Jesus? The second is, what must I do to be saved? And the third would be along the lines of, is the Bible true? Or is the Bible the Word of God? Those are three of the most critical questions you can ask yourself and then wrestle down to an answer to those things. It was the heart of uh, Jesus Christ being the Son of God was the heart of New Testament preaching that you read in the book of Acts. So, for example, we get in Acts chapter 18, Paul that goes into a particular place and it says he reasoned with them in the synagogue every day. I, I love that word reasoned. We've often said to you, we don't expect you when you walk into this building to leave your brains at the door. We really don't. God has given us rational ways of thinking. God has given us reasonableness. And so we need to be able to reason. And faith is not just a shot in the dark. Our faith is a reasonable faith. There are steps that you have to take, but they are reasonable steps. And so Paul comes in, he says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and the Greeks. So that means everybody that he met there and it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That's really critical. Testifying that the Christ was Jesus. It matters what you believe about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In another place, in Acts chapter 9, one of the... Uh, disciples, immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. In other words, you can't just have Jesus here and forget about Christ and the Son of God. They go together. It is the same person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Acts chapter 17, 2, Paul is in Thessalonica, and it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on one of three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them. There it is again. He reasoned with them. 
He listened to their questions. He listened to their arguments. He presented his arguments. He drove them back to the scriptures and said, well, what do you make of these scriptures? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Critical, important, and I want to persuade you of that. One more, Acts chapter 18, 28. Apollos, it says, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So the very first sentence of the Gospel of Mark, and if you have your Bibles open, you can see it. The very first sentence is, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his statement. This is his conviction This is what he will now show as he recounts by an eyewitness accounts the words and the testimonies and the deeds of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Is this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, life-changing towards you? Or are you indifferent to it and you hear this, you go, blah, 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 blah. My hope is that if you are indifferent, you will come to the place where you see this is the most important question that you can ask and answer. Who is Jesus? You see, Jesus is not just a man. And Jesus is not just God. Let me push that a little bit further. Jesus is a member of the Godhead. He is God. He is divine. He is the externally, or he has existed eternally as God. And although he took on human nature, he did not come into existence in the incarnation. Simply when, 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 when he came into the earth, he came into the body of this Holy Spirit created flesh and blood like you have as the eternally existent God. He was in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, always in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, completely and utterly equal with the Father and the Spirit. He is God. And so it doesn't do for somebody to say, well, you know, I like, I like Jesus of, of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. They are one and the same. You, you can't divorce the two. And you might say, well, you might be talking with somebody and, and they might say to you, well, Jesus never said that. And you might say, well, let's go to the Old Testament or let's go to this New Testament plate and let's see what the Bible says. But, but Jesus didn't say that. It's not in red letters. Well, loved ones, Jesus is God and Jesus was, is the Word and in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Godhead together wrote the Word of God. So there's no separating Jesus from his deity or from his Godness. We get muddled sometimes and distracted sometimes. Don't be fooled by that, loved ones. Jesus is God, coexistent, co-eternal, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
So everything that Mark does in the first half of the gospel, he wants to confirm and affirm and demonstrate that, in fact, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel then with a statement I think we need to embrace and a statement that he was convicted of. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is not giving us here advice on how we ought to live. Mark has good news concerning a person. And this is important. This is good news concerning a person. He uses the the phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning. It's a familiar phrase if you know your Bible, isn't it? There's a, a few places where different books of the Bible begin with that, sort, that word, in the beginning. We've just come through Genesis 1 to 11. How does Genesis 1-1 begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was an astounding act of God whereby God brought into existence the heavens and the earth. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 describes to us the beginning activity of God in the history of humankind. And so here, Mark is making a statement about another beginning of the activity of God in history. When the Son of God stepped in to time and space, where God himself, so to speak, stepped out of eternity into time. It's an incredible statement that he is making, which has significant impact on your life and my life. He is talking about a time when God, in the fullness of time, was born of a woman and entered into our history. Each of the Gospels has a different starting point. Matthew's Gospel takes Jesus all the way back to Abraham, which is so important. He just attaches Jesus, humanly speaking, from a birth perspective, from a genealogical perspective, back to Abraham, through whom God made this incredible promise, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But Luke does something even more, um, uh, something different. He doesn't just take Jesus back to Abraham. He takes Jesus all the way back to Adam. And what he does there is he connects Jesus with all of humanity. We've said this before. Humans didn't just pop up um, sort of all over the place like the gopher board. And there's a group of humans that all of a sudden just came from a amoeba over here and a group of humans that came from a lizard over here. No, we are one. We are one family, one human family. And so Luke takes Jesus all the way back to Adam. John does something remarkable. He takes Jesus back to eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. They're all making different points about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark begins, though, with the appearing of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When God appears, so to speak, becomes visible, so to speak, being found in the form of a human being. In, the new, in, in John's perspective, this is incredible news. This is the beginning of a whole new work of God to recreate humanity, so to speak. And Mark describes this event as the gospel. Gospel means joyful news. It means good news. So if, if, if you just got a, 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 a big bonus and you come home and you, you wanted to tell your wife, honey, I, I just 
got a, 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 I have great news. You could say, honey, I've got gospel for you. And it would be good news. It would be something to rejoice about. And so this is what Mark wants us to understand, that this is joyful news. It's not just a, a biblical word. It's a, a word that was very common in, uh, in, in um, the times uh, around those centuries. Um, when an uh, army had been successful and was coming back from war, they would often send runners or they would come with good news. Great joy. We won the war. We've been victorious in this battle. We've got good news. Uh, it was used to describe the birth of Caesar Augustus, uh, probably the preeminent emperor of the Roman Empire. And when he was born about 10 years before the birth of Jesus, his birth was hailed as good news. He was hailed as a god that had been born in his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the word world. And so it, there's actually inscriptions that said, um, good news, joyful news. We have a political redeemer. And so it's a common work, word of the day, victory in battle, deliverance from enemies, a, a political savior. Mark takes that word now and he attaches it to Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he says, this is good news. Do you understand it to be good news? Have you understood it to be good news in your life? The Bible would say, and Isaiah says this, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. Isaiah would say of a prophecy regarding the Christ or the Messiah. He says, go on to a mountain, the highest place, and proclaim the good news, the arrival of a king. And so what Mark wants us to understand is that with the entrance of Jesus into the world, the king of kings has come into human history. And with him, the kingdom of God is now being unleashed in human life. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, good news, to redeem and to adopt. Titus says, uh, the, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. When the grace of God appeared, Titus says in another place, he saved us, making us heirs. Hebrews 9, 26 says, he appeared to put away sin. Uh, John, 1 John 3, 5 said, he appeared in order to take away sin. 1 John 3, 8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. This is good news. A savior has been born, Jesus Christ, the son of God. So the name here, Jesus. Jesus is the human name that was given to the child born to Mary. When she was pregnant, the angel appeared to Joseph and said to him, your wife, Mary, she's going to bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Yahweh will save. It's, it's like calling him Joshua. Yahweh will save. It's no trivial matter that Jesus was a person, fully human, able to trace his ancestry all the way back to David, Abraham, to Adam, 
He ate and drank. He grew tired and weary. He was flesh and blood like us in every way except sin. But our Savior needs to be more than a mere mortal. Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. Christ is a a title in the Bible. It means Messiah or the anointed one. It's a royal title. Jesus, the king, a son of God. That's what Messiah means. And the reason that title is associated with Jesus is because all through the Old Testament, God has said, I will send a redeemer. I will send a Messiah. And the work of the Messiah is to suffer and die and to take on the weight of the sins of the people of humanity and to bear the punishment of God and to deliver society, humankind, from its imprisonment to sin, its captivity to Satan and its fear of death. And this was the whole prophesy of the prophecy of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. And so what the Bible teaches and what Mark wants to demonstrate is that Jesus, the human, was the prophesied Christ, the Messiah, who is God. The Son of God. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. This describes his lineage. He is the Son of God, one in nature with God, co-eternal with God, co-equal with God. He's a member of the Godhead. Do you see what that's saying? God saves us. God pays the penalty for our sins. God experiences death in our place so that we don't have to die. It matters that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. One of the uh, amazing things about the Bible is it takes, or Mark, it takes human beings a while to catch on. God has no misunderstanding of who Jesus is. When Jesus is baptized, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You read the first part of uh, Mark, and we'll look at this. There are times when um, demons... Uh, have been marauding and molesting and invading human beings. And Jesus will come along and with his power and his might, he will deliver them. And the demons will say something like, what have you to do with us, son of God? Do you understand what's going on there? The demons knew who Jesus was. They knew his identity. They existed for a period of time in the heavenly places where Jesus, who was now God, veiled in human flesh, existed. They knew exactly who Jesus was. And it took a while for humans to get it and understand and see that, in fact, this child that was born to Mary, Jesus, was in fact the Messiah, was in fact the Son of God. So Mark's going to lay out evidence for that, and I hope to persuade you of that. And I'm happy to go out for coffee or breakfast and talk about this, as is anybody in this church, as in any other pastor. We would love to have these conversations with one another. 
and to persuade and reason with you why it matters and why it is good news that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Something shocking takes place in about chapter 9 of Mark. We've said that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, a king that has come with a kingdom. And our expectation would be, oh, wow, what a king of might, what a king of power, what a king that's going to come rule. And in our own minds, we think, what of the pomp and the circumstance? We've just watched the royal family over in England just go through all kinds of ceremonies as a queen has died and over a new king has, has, has been uh, coronated and, and there's pomp and there's circumstance and there's glitz and there's glamour. And so we would think, well, wow, this is God come to earth. What, how is he going to display his power and his might and his glory? And the exact opposite takes place. In fact, not even the exact opposite. The absolutely unthinkable takes place. This is that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's just shocking. What Jesus teaches and what Jesus models is what Jesus calls you and I to. To serve and to sacrifice. Not only for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but for those in the world. It's a pattern for us to follow. And it's unique in the world in which we live. We, we don't live in a world that is given to service. We don't get live in a world that's given to self-sacrifice. We live in a world where leaders lord it over us, have power over us, try and control us, try and reign over us. We are all about ourselves, about our name and our reputation and our glory and our positions and our power. And Jesus says the exact opposite. It's just that, what's your attitude in the home? You know, kids. Is your attitude, I, I want to serve my mom and dad? I want to serve my brothers and sisters? If we don't get to do what I want to do today, I'm happy if my brother gets to do what he wants to do. Or I'm happy if my sister gets to do what she wants to do. It's just not all about me. I, I just want to be a part of this family and serve one another. Husbands and wives, is this your attitude towards one another? I, I want to serve you. I'd really like to do this, you might say in your help, but you know, if, if this is what we all want to do, and if this is what you really, I, I want to do that. And you know, it's not just about me and getting my way and what I want to do. It, it's about us and, and what, what would be best for us together. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a completely different way of living our lives in this world. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ do that? He gave himself up for her. Self-sacrifice. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. It's this, this interchange of serving and putting the needs and interests of others ahead of ourselves. There's a text which brings this out 
illustrates this in such a brilliant way. You can turn to it, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. I want to read it and just make some comments. This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul begins by simply saying this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Boom. <laughs> this just addresses our motive. Just our motive in life. Do nothing. Not do most things or once in a while, but do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. How different is that from what we see in the world around us? What's the alternative? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Whoa, we don't like that word too much either. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. But humility means, I think, a correct assessment of yourself, your gifts, your abilities. Then let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Wow. It's not, an, it's not saying you can't have any of your own interests. It's just saying yours aren't to be the only or the priority. Yours aren't the only interest. There's other people in this picture. There's other people in the family. There's other people in the church. They might have interests that differ than yours. Consider them. Think about them. And then you say, well, that's really not possible. That's not really reasonable. Where do we ever see that? And he says, well, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So he, he says, okay, this is what I tell you to do. Let me give you a model of that. And he says, I want you to embrace a mindset. I think we all know what a mindset is. You know, we say to somebody, set your mind to this. Wrap your mind around this task. Wrap your thinking around getting this done. It's a focus. It's a, it's, it's a, it, it's a, a way of thinking that kind of sets everything else out as a side. So he says, have this mind in you, which is also Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, look at what Jesus did. Look at what God did in coming to earth. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, co-equal to God, coexistent with God, says, I'm not going to hang on to my position as God. I'm not going to use my position to, to lord it over you, to control you, to, to make you do what I want you to do. After all, I've earned the right. I'm God. I made you. It says, no, he emptied himself. That doesn't mean he, he ceased to exist as God. It means that he set aside the prerogatives of deity. He set aside his rights as God. And notice what it says. He took on the form of a servant. Don't you find that just... How do you, how do you figure that out? God, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, including you and I, became a servant to rebels like you and I. It's hard for us even to wrap our heads around because that is so foreign to our thinking. It's something that, that we just resist. 
being born in the likeness of men. That means he identified with us. United himself to us. And being found in the form, a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There it is, the self-sacrifice. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You might say, say it isn't so. That's not the pattern I want to follow. That's just, I just can't wrap my head around that. That's not the kind of leader I'm looking for. That's not the kind of leader I want. But that's the kind of God that is described in the scriptures. And this is what Mark says is good news. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. And the key point, I think, of it is Jesus isn't a political leader. We might have political needs, and we might prefer one prime minister over another or one president over another or one benevolent dictator over another. That, that's true. I, I get all that kind of stuff. And those things change, and they have a way of coming full circle sometimes and do all of that sort of stuff. Our primary need is not economics, although we would like to have more money in our pockets and, you know, we would like to be richer and we would like to have more access to jobs and all those sorts of things. But that's not our primary need. Do you know what our primary needs are? I need Satan to get out of my life. I need to be sin. I need sin to be dealt with in my life. And I need the fear of death to be taken away from me. And that's what Jesus Christ, our King, does. He has come to destroy the works of the devil, and it says one day he will crush Satan under his feet. The one who first appeared in the garden and just made a mess of things. He has come to deal with your sin and my sin. This is extraordinary. God has borne his own penalty, the guilt, and the weight of shame upon himself. He has taken it from us, and he puts it on his son. And he has died so that we don't have to die. That's the kind of savior I need. That's the kind of king I need. This is why Mark can say, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And it might take us a little bit of time, but we need to wrap our heads around this. And I am so thankful that we don't have to become brainwashed it's not like you expect us somehow to be robotic in our response. You've given us minds. You've given us good minds. Our reason has been affected by sin, and it is impacted by the world in which we live in, but we still reason nonetheless.
And so I pray, Father, for everyone in this room, that there would be a willingness to wrestle this thing to the ground, to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? And not only to ask that question, but then to say, why does that matter? Oh, Father, would you blow our minds with the reasonableness of the truth contained in your word this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.